This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Well, good morning, everyone. If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, I'm Ronnie. Um, We're going to start with God's Word as we did last week. So if you're willing and able, would you please stand? And um, our text this morning comes from 1 John chapter 5, the first five verses. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. May he bless it for you and for me. You may take your seats. So we've been in a sermon series on a small little letter towards the very end of your Bible called 1 John. And the author of 1 John is the same guy who wrote the Gospel of John, right? One of the four Gospels. And before he was the Apostle John, he was the Disciple John. So John walked with Jesus for three years, and Jesus and John were best friends. John is called the Disciple that Jesus loved. Now in our text today, John references this idea of being born of God. Born of God. Now, if you think about it, that's a really weird thing to say, right? By using that language, John's actually referencing back to his gospel in John chapter 3. And in that chapter, the reader is introduced to a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a civic leader. He's educated. He's a religious man. He's respected. Uh, Nicodemus and Jesus are having a conversation And Jesus uh, says, no one can enter the kingdom unless he's born again. Though Nicodemus is an intelligent man, an intelligent person, he has no clue what Jesus is talking about. He says, what in the world? Must a man go back into the womb of his mother? Because I don't think that's going to work, right? Clearly, there was some confusion Jesus was talking about a more profound birth, a spiritual birth. In the same way that a baby is born and awakens to life, we must be born and come to life spiritually. In other words, Jesus teaches us about the reality of our souls. Namely, that we can be alive physically, but be spiritually dead. Something needs to be regenerated. So in the same way that every human is born of their mother, spiritually speaking, we must also be born of God. Now, when a preacher starts talking about being born of God, it's such a like a religious way of talking. It's such like Christian jargon that our minds kind of want to turn this off, 
right? It rings of heaven and hell and, and eternal life. And those things are a little bit uncomfortable. And if that's you, I, w- I want to invite you to give it a chance. Because whether you listen to this sermon or not, your heart is consciously or subconsciously super locked in to questions of transcendence. Every person has eternity written on their hearts. It haunts us, even when we don't want to talk about it. That's why parents struggle with anxiety when their children start to drive. Why? Because we fear they're going to die, right? That's why in our country we pay billions of dollars each year to prolong, prolong the life of our loved ones, even if it's only for a few more weeks. That's why we stuff our face with blueberries and kale. That's why we pay countless amounts of money for de-aging cream. The hope or anxiety of eternity is always gnawing at our soul, even when we avoid talking about it. So I want you to know that the stakes are really high. And I'm not, I'm not just talking about what happens to you when you die. I'm talking about your life right now. I'm talking about your fundamental self-understanding. A few years ago, I read about a man who bought several acres of land out in West Texas. The land had an old rundown house on it, and the land itself wasn't very productive. But he, he purchased it as an investment, hoping that he could improve it. So he got it, and over the course of 20 years, you know, he poured money into it. 20 difficult years of hard work, investing his own money, right, to, to make the land profitable. And he finally got it to a place where he could make a modest profit, and then he sold it. Now, what he came to find out later is that the entire time, there were vast reservoirs of oil underneath the land. Tens of millions of dollars. This is the kind of money that would have been life-changing. It was always there, but it was out of sight, and he completely missed it. The Apostle John is saying that there is something incomparably more life-changing than what that man had. John is telling us that we can be overcomers of this world, which is the difference between simply existing and truly living. And it has everything to do with being born of God. So imagine collecting all the ways in which you have sought to understand yourself over the course of your life. Maybe through comparison, maybe your jobs, your resume, your accomplishments. If you did that, you you could draw a connection between those things and your present self-identity. You could understand why you see yourself the way you do. But what if you understood yourself as being born of God? What if that were the anchor of your self-understanding? If it were, it would form you and transform you and grow you. Well, the Bible talks about this topic, so instead of ignoring it, we're going to learn from Jesus. So let's, let's let God's word interrupt us a little bit this morning. The Apostle John's thinking about the subject all goes through this language of being born of God. So first, we're going to ask, what is being born of God? Then we're going to ask, how do we know if we're born of God? And then we'll finish with the gift of being born of God. So let's begin by asking, what does it mean to be born of God? 
Now, listen, I, I grew up in Houston in a decidedly Catholic family. So um, we knew we were not Protestants. Now, I don't know if this was your experience, but in my sort of neck of the woods, there was um, this an additional category for certain kinds of Protestants. It was the born-again Christians. So to me, being born again was a certain kind of Christian. And let me just say, it was not a flattering term. Uh, it referred to people who perhaps needed an emotional experience from God, maybe a bit rural, uh, definitely not educated or logical. It described a person who needed a faith community who was really, really strict and authoritative uh, about social mores, maybe fundamentalist types. And if I'm, if I'm honest, I probably thought that they handled snakes. Just throwing that out there. But then I became a Christian, and I started reading the Bible. And I found out, I found out very quickly that there's only one kind of Christian. To be Christian, you must be born again. All Christians must be born again. This is not a kind of Christian. This is Christianity. And this, of course, is explicit in the story that I just referenced in the introduction about Jesus and Nicodemus. But in our text, in just five verses, John references it three times. Look there in verse 1. John says, Everyone who believes in the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. So these verses are real explicit. It directly links our faith to the reality of being born of God. Everyone who believes and trusts in Christ, well, you believe because you've been born again. Everyone who loves the Father, well, you love because you've been born again. Faith and love are evidences of being born again. And because John, you know, we've been studying this book for several months now, he likes to repeat his terms over and over again. Look there in verse 4, he says, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. So if you're living on this broken planet, but you do so with grace and perseverance and forgiveness, it's because you've been born again, born of God. So believing in Jesus loving your heavenly father, walking in a, a trajectory of humble and victorious living, these are all evidences of being a Christian. But the apostle John says, it's because you have been born of God. You're born into a family where God's the father. You see that? My best friend from college, he had two older sisters, but his story is really interesting. When my friend was seven years old, his sister, his older sister was nine years old, but his parents adopted uh, a Filipino girl who was 12 years old, and her name was Mara. And Mara grew up in an orphanage. She only spoke Filipino or Tagalog, some of those local dialects. Uh, she was a Filipino girl. This was almost 40 years ago. Guess what language Mara speaks now? English. Mara's favorite food is her adopted father's artisanal hamburgers and french fries. Mare's dad is an American, and all of her peculiarities, her tastes, her hobbies, her priorities, all come from her adopted family. Her adopted family has absolutely shaped what she likes, how she talks, and who she is. Mara was physically born in the Philippines, 
But in one sense, she was born again into another family. And you can tell exactly which family it was, right? That's kind of what John is insinuating. That's what he's showing us here. He says, hey, that guy believes in Jesus. Hey, that guy loves the Father. Hey, that guy lives his life in a certain way. He has the same accent as his dad. We all know what family he belongs to. See, being born of God is not a flavor of Christianity. It's the backstory that describes every single Christian. If you are a Christian, it means that something preceded you. It means that before you knew it, you were born of God. You were made spiritually alive. All Christians must be born again. And we have the Lord to thank for that. Now, even as I've tried to explain the language of born of God, you can tell I'm already kind of dancing with some of the evidences of being born again. So let's move to our second question. How do we know if we are born of God? Well, look what it says there in verses um, 2 and 3. It says, by this we know that we love the children of God, that when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. He says, this is what it would look like. Love God. Love others born of God. Obey his commandments. Right? And those commandments won't be burdensome. And then you will overcome the world. Okay? Have you ever, um, have you ever blown up a balloon and when it's full, you accidentally let go of the tip and all that hot carbon dioxide goes rushing back into your lungs, it's awful. It's awful. When you say to me, hey, just love God, love the children of God, obey his commands, those commands won't be burdensome and overcome the world. When you say that to me, it feels like, I, like my own breath is invading my lungs. It's horrible. It's horrible. I try to get honest with myself this week. I mean, what part of that is so terrible? I think it's the part of obeying and it not feeling burdensome. Because that's, that's actually hard. I mean, we, we could just read right over this text. This is actually really hard for me to comprehend. Have you ever um, had a boss that you felt didn't understand you? Uh, or maybe your boss is out of touch? Years ago, I had a boss who was incredibly emotionally immature and created a real toxic environment in the office. Uh, and as a result, I began to like sort of project motives every single time he would ask something of me, right? He asked me to buy a certain kind of paper, and I assumed there, that was like an implicit critique that he didn't like the, the paper I purchased last time. It was really burdensome to hear this man speak. Uh, that's an awful way to live. That's an awful way to live. But I wonder... I wonder if we think about God's commands as burdensome because we have the wrong vision of God himself. Like we think of him like a toxic boss. See, your vision of God, your vision of the person doing the commanding in the relationship totally changes the commands. There are some commands that are not burdensome at all. In fact, it, it, it can be quite awesome Years ago, on our 10-year anniversary, Amanda and I, we took a trip to New York City. It's the only time I've ever been to the city. It is spectacular. 
other than its sports teams. But other, it's incredible. So like a good tourist, like a good tourist, I made, we made plans to eat at all these awesome restaurants, right? And one of the restaurants we went to, there was this old-fashioned diner where apparently, so they report, many celebrities frequent. When we get there, I find that Justin Timberlake is, is one of those celebrities. So the waitress seats us, and I say, hey, have you ever waited on, you know, JT? And she said, of course, all the time. In fact, you're sitting in the booth that he sits in. Now, at this point, I feel like I'm basically BFFs with Justin, right? So she continues, she goes, if you want, I will tell you exactly what to order so that you eat the exact same meal as him. What did I do? Done. Of course. I'll take that. I didn't even look at the menu. So she ordered for me these sort of fancy waffles and a Coke. I probably would not have ordered that for myself, but I ate JT's whole order. And the waiter could have said, you know, Justin likes to eat green eggs and ham, and I probably would have eaten it, you know? Why? Because it's the coolest thing, effectively having JT what, tell me what to eat. But stick with me for a second here. If the waitress would have said, hey, that stranger there at the bar, Robert, he wants to tell you what to eat. Well, well how would I have responded? I would have said, no, thank you. You shut your mouth or we're going to take this out in the parking lot. No one tells me what to order. No, kidding. Kids, I'm kidding. Don't talk like that. Um, here's my point. Our perception of the person doing the commanding in the relationship changes the way we hear the commands. What does God feel like to you? Does he feel like a toxic boss that doesn't understand you? That's incompetent? Or does he feel like someone awesome and famous who has awesome tastes who's inviting you to his table. Jesus, he looked at his disciples who are riddled with legalism, and he says this in Matthew chapter 11. He says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You know what a yoke is? A yoke is this apparatus that farmers use to link two animals together. And then they attach that apparatus to a farming tool, like a plow. So farmers will tell you that one strong animal is usually sufficient to pull a plow. But often they will include a second one to share the load and to train a second animal. But even when there are two animals connected, one of them they'll tell you, is always doing more work. But it's hard to tell which one. In any case, they are both getting credit for one body of work. Jesus is saying, take my yoke. Learn from me. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. If we are yoked together, then we're both going to get credit for what we produce. Take it. He says, this will be great. What is evidence that you are born of God? It's if you are yoked to Jesus. 
I know of no other way to obey his commandments without them feeling burdensome. There is no other way. What is your vision of God then? Will you take his yoke? That's how you know. That's how you know if you're in the family of God. You've taken his yoke. All right. So we looked at the meaning of being born of God, and then we considered the evidence of being born of God. We looked at John's commandments to love God, love the children of God, uh, obey his commandments, make sure those commandments don't feel burdensome, and overcome the world. Now in this final section, we're going to explore the gift of being born of God. And, And let me just say, this comes at just the right moment in the sermon. Let's say uh, you take those evidences, right? Love God, love others, obey his commands, don't let them feel burdensome and overcome the world. Let's say you take those evidences as a test and let's say you blow it. You totally fail. There might be a temptation at this point in the sermon to say, okay, now I I just need to try harder. I, I need to put my nose to the grind, right? I need to pick myself up. And most of you expect the, the, the Apostle John to say, hey guys, y'all really need to do a spiritual juice cleanse because you're not performing, right? Do better. But that's not what John says. John says that we need faith. Look there at verse 4, you guys. It says in verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. What precisely is the victory that overcomes the world? It's faith. And then in verse 5, John just sort of doubles down, right? Look what it says there in verse 5. He says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The one who believes, believing, faith. That is the most incredibly passive response I could think of. You need faith. So let me, would you allow me just to think about faith with you for just a moment? Because when I was growing up, I I understood faith as being this mysterious bridge between what the Bible teaches and what my science books said, right? Uh, of course, I, I grew up pretty secular education, but that's how I understood faith. Or sometimes I thought faith was a sort of get out of jail free card that Christians use when they can't explain why bad things happen. Now, I'm not saying that we can't use faith that way, but what I am saying is that's not what John is saying. You guys, uh, y'all know here, every Sunday we use the Westminster Confession of Faith to help us sort of outline the core doctrines of the Bible. The Westminster Confession is so good. It's so rich, so helpful. It says, this is what it says. It says, faith is resting resting upon and receiving Jesus. Please teach that to your children. Please teach that to your children. But think about this. Our faith is resting upon and receiving Jesus. In other words, resting upon what Christ does, not what we do. So we say, yup, I don't love God the way I should. I don't love his children the way I should. 
God's commands are burdensome. And then incline your eyes to look to Jesus who loved God and loved the children of God perfectly. Look to Jesus who obeyed the commandments perfectly without them being burdensome and say to him, I need your goodness to be mine. Give me credit for your beautiful perfection. I mean, y'all think about this phrase, born of God. We all know that babies contribute nothing to their own birth. If anything, babies are a hindrance to their own birth. I was given advice years ago that on your birthday, always thank and congratulate your mother. She's the one who did all the hard work. In the same way, if you are born of God, thank God he did all of the hard work. Indeed, he died so that you would come alive. You didn't contribute any bit of that. If anything, you and I were a hindrance. All Christians must be born again, and we have the Lord to thank. The way that we overcome the world is resting upon the one who overcame the world. Verse 4, the victory that has overcome the world, our faith resting upon and receiving Jesus. Isn't it? wild for John to say it like that. It's so like counterintuitive. Can I just give you one warning? Because man, I want you to receive and rest upon Jesus, especially if you don't right now. Let me give you one warning. On one hand, this is so easy, right? Resting upon Jesus to be your righteousness But listen, if you rest upon Jesus, it will completely change your self-understanding. Doesn't it have to, right? Listen, I was born of Rosalinda. That's my mother's name. I was born of Rosalinda. This is an an incredibly passive thing on my part, but it totally shapes who I am. And if this is true for my biological mother, how much more is it for being born of God? If you rest upon Jesus, if you're born of God, then you'll see yourself as born again. But listen, listen, guys, please stick with me. In the 1980s, being born again, it was considered a a social good. It meant that you were trustworthy, right? In the 90s, people who were born again, they were, you know, they're kind of considered neutral at that point. Maybe a little bit quirky, but there's no strong stigma By the 2000s, in urban areas, the social value of people who are born again is considered negative. In other words, if you identify as a born-again Christian, you will take some heat for it. It's a little bit embarrassing in the secular world. And because it's looked down upon socially, it's almost impossible for that not to affect you. You'll, you'll have this internal bias, to, and you'll try to hide and kind of stuff your faith. But listen, if there is no discomfort in your Christian walk as you interact in the world, it might be because you're not born of God. Don't stuff it. Don't do it. Don't 
don't be embarrassed by your accent. Don't be embarrassed by your priorities. Don't be embarrassed by your family. I know we're a mess. Don't be embarrassed. Faith is passive in that sense, but it is hard. Let it shape your life. There's only one reason to believe Christianity and to let it shape your life. It's because it's absolutely true. Let me just finish with a story. There's a pastor, his name is Drew Sokol, and he recently talked about his, his mother's process of finding her biological father. So she was adopted and never learned his identity. So this process was a little bit scary for her because she had met two other men that she thought were her father, but it turned out that they weren't. But she'd come upon new information that led her to believe that she had found this man at last. Now, Drew's mom didn't have his contact, but she did have an email of, the, um, of one of the three sisters who were this man's daughters. So she writes an email and says, I don't want to alarm you, uh, but I think we might be sisters. I would love to meet, and if you're willing to take a DNA test uh, to confirm it, I'd really appreciate that. And the one sister agreed. The two other sisters were a little bit more hesitant. Um, these women had hard childhoods too, just like Drew's mom. So the sister said, um, well, let's see what the DNA tests say. If it comes up negative, you know, we wish you all the best, but it's, it's probably best just to separate ways. But if it comes back positive, we want to welcome you into our family. Well, the test came back positive. And Drew and his mother drove to Louisiana and spent Thanksgiving with his mom's new sisters. And Drew says, now I have this new big Italian family that I didn't even know about. And at the dinner table at Thanksgiving, they listened to six hours of family stories. And now those stories are their stories. That's their history now. But here's what Drew realized. The truth and the validity of those stories are now shaping and changing their lives. His mother is immersed in a new story with new family, and it's changing her world, but from the inside out. Being born again, being born of God is like that. Perhaps you've lived your entire life, and then you discover that your father is in heaven and your father has a son, and that son did everything to have you in the family. He even died for you, and everyone, the father and the son, love you. That sacred story of love can fundamentally alter your self-understanding. I want you to know that story. I want you to know that love. It's like a deep reservoir of wealth that has been there all along, but you finally discovered it. It can be utterly life-changing if you'll let it. Amen? Amen.